Hey, how we doing? Grab your Bibles, get to uh, Mark 10. Grab your phones, get your Bible app fired up, get to Mark 10. We are going to be um, looking at an encounter that Jesus has. It's found in Mark 10 this morning. And um, while you're turning there, um, because I'm old and therefore I get to kind of do whatever I want on staff, let me show you a picture that I wanted to show you this morning. Can you put that up? That's a new grandkid. And um, the only thing better than kids is grandkids. And if you have kids, hang in there. There's a uh, light at the end of the tunnel. But um, this is our newest granddaughter. This is Avalyn. And she was born to our daughter, Nico and Tony. It's, it's weird. This is our second grandkid that's been born during um, COVID. So you don't get to visit at the hospital. So she gave birth, um, Nico gave birth on Thursday. Um, you've got to wait until they come home on Saturday. So we got to go over a little bit before service yesterday after they got home. And for the first time, I held this new granddaughter. This is number 11. It's now six, five girls. Um, I don't know if it's going to stay there. I hope not. I've been putting pressure on Cal and Mary. They're, they're not into the competition. And, um, but but uh, it's interesting. She's um, just under, I think she was born just a shade over seven pounds. It's now just a shade under seven pounds as they take her home. And um, that's tiny. If you've held babies that are that small, that's tiny. Cal's twins, when they were born, I think were three, four, and three eleven. So this is double the size of Cal's daughters. But you hold a little child like that, and you get a picture kind of of helpless dependence, don't you? And um, I did all of that to set up my first point of my message. Kind of clever, right? If you're keeping notes, the first point is this. Childlike faith is an example of helpless dependence. We're going to pick it up in Mark 10, 13. There's a, there's a story that's a backdrop to the encounter we're going to be looking at. And I want to look at this just quickly. It says in Mark 10, 13, and they were bringing children to him, him being Jesus. They were bringing children to Jesus that he might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to me, don't hinder them, for to such belong, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. I, I was reminded as I read that verse, um, maybe 12, 13 years ago, I was attending what's now Summit Church in West Olive. Back then it was um, Harvest. West Olive, and we sent a team of, I think, five guys over to Liberia. It was the first missions trip that that church had taken. We were partnering with a church there, praying for an opportunity to plant additional churches in Liberia. But for all of us, it was our first trip um, specifically to Liberia, probably for all of us. I know for me, it was my first trip to Africa, and we were on the western side of the continent. It's one of the poorest nations in the world. And as we settled into where this church was located, there was this interesting kind of dynamic at the church. It was maybe a church of uh, 200. The pastor spoke English. The rest of the um, congregation really didn't. If this church, and I use church loosely, it was more of kind of a, a thatch kind of building um, maybe seated 150 to 200. Well, as we gathered for the first evening service, the building was filled with adults but no kids. And uh, there were hundreds of kids outside the building, hundreds and hundreds from the village running around outside the building. And there was uh, a gal stationed at the back of the church, and her job was if any of the kids got too close to the building, she would hit them with a stick. 
and I was like, wow, this is kind of an interesting take on kidsmen. And um, we watched this, and the pastor after the service was like, well, what do you think? And we're like, hey, not love the service, not awesome watching what's going on with the kids. Would you mind if we tried to run a kids program while we're here? He's like, go for it. And so the five of us went out the next couple days, and we planned some events and some relay races, and there were five of us, and we were immediately surrounded by about 700 kids who had never done anything structured. And I, we had a little gospel lesson, and we're trying to get them into relay. It was absolute chaos. We were completely run over. I remember one of the kids had a monkey on his shoulder. That was distracting, but it was, it was, it was a different context. And, and the pastor came out in the middle of our disaster. He's like, so how's this going? And um, it's like, this is going to be a little harder than we thought. But it's interesting, looking back now from that start, um, the church began to invest in the kids. And the churches that were planted began to invest in the kids. And not only was um, there the opportunity for us to plant more churches in Liberia, but then there were schools at all of the churches, and they embraced this idea that the kids were the future of the church. And it's interesting, as I thought about that, Jesus is being approached by these children. The disciples are like, keep them away. And Jesus is like, let the children come to me. It's interesting, in the backdrop of where Jesus is saying this, there was a Roman law. Kids didn't have a ton of value in the, in the Rome uh, legal system. And there's a, a saying, and I'm going to butcher this because it's in Latin, but I think it's patria potestis, patria potestis. If you speak Latin, and I butchered that, my apologies, but if you speak Latin, you've got probably bigger issues. Um, but the, the issue here, what this did was it gave the father um, absolute power over his family. If... Um, a mom gave birth and the dad wanted a boy and it was a girl or vice versa, he could give the thumbs down and that kid would be murdered. If, if a son up into high school age, teenage age, if a son rebelled against the father, the dad just didn't like him. Uh, on his word, that kid could be put to death. This practice of infanticide wasn't outlawed under Roman law until 375 AD. So you just understand the conditions when these kids were approaching Jesus and he was giving them value that wasn't common in their society. And as barbaric as that sounds, us looking back 2,000 years on what was going on in Jesus' day, I'm not sure in the United States we hold high moral high ground over what was going on in Roman culture when you consider our abortion rates, and kind of the exploitation of children. But Jesus steps into this and he says, no, 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 don't push the kids away. I, just two takeaways from this first story. Get the kids to Jesus. That's our job. Get your kids. We're doing what we can to get the kids at this church to Jesus. Barna Research Group ran a survey of adult followers of Jesus Christ and it revealed that two-thirds of Christians came to faith before the age of 18. 43% came to Christ before the age of 12. I, I hope if you have kids at this church and they are right now down in nurseries or in the children's ministry or junior high ministries or high school ministries, I hope you're thanking the workers for investing into your kids and just know the heart of all of those ministries on a week-by-week -week basis is to show in whatever lesson we teach that Jesus is the star of the show.
That's what we're doing. We're, we're, we take serious this idea of getting the kids to Jesus. And then I would just say this secondly. I've seen this in my own grandkids. There is a special joy when, when, a, when a child or a young person gives their life to Christ. D.L. Moody, he was a pastor in the 1800s in the Chicagoland area. He has also started a school by the name of Moody Bible Institute. We've got a lot of our staff. We've got a lot of Moody staff. I, that's where they went to school. I don't mean they're Moody. <laughs> Some of them are both. You, I, I digress. Um, but it's interesting. D.L. Moody came back from a church service, and um, he told a friend we had two and a half conversions tonight. And the friend said, so two adults and one child, I suppose? And Moody answered, he said, no, two children and an adult. The, child gave, the children gave their whole lives. The adult only had half his life to give. And Jesus follows up. Look at it in verse 15. He says, truly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. What's it mean to receive the kingdom of God like a child? Well, as I studied this this week, most land on this idea of helpless dependence. Looking at Jesus, understanding him as a savior, simple faith. Children tend to have helpless dependence. They're not caught up in the trappings of life. Their, their lives are not consumed already by our sin natures and the entanglements and the problems that sin bring. It's interesting, um, my daughter Catherine and Austin, they have, they have two daughters. Um, Emma is a little bit older. She's eight, and Molly is six. And just even within uh, interacting with our daughters, I can give um, Molly a dollar bill, and her eyes will get really, really big. She's six. She thinks she's the richest person in the world. Like, her, like she's so happy if you give her a dollar bill. Emma, she's eight. If you give her a bill... She's learned to look at whose picture's on it. Uh, there's a little bit more advancement in, in money, and it's like, okay, it's a different thing. And there's uh, joy when children accept at a young age. Charles Spurgeon, pastor that we often quote here, he said this, I usually found a clearer knowledge of the gospel and a warmer love to Christ in the childlike converts than in adult converts. And I'm going to give you all of this to hit on this helpless dependence idea because that is the backdrop, that is the contrast that Mark is trying to create as we go into the exchange that we're going to look at today. Look at verse 17. I entitled this message, A Foolish Exchange. Verse 17 says this, speaking of Jesus and as he was setting out on his journey, and again, for the last couple of weeks, as we've been studying the life of Jesus, kind of going through it chronologically, Jesus is in the last year of his ministry. He's less than a year away from the cross. When it talks about him starting his journey, his eyes, his gaze, it is fixed towards Jerusalem. He is now on mission to get to Jerusalem to be our Savior, to be on the cross. If you had less than a year to live, I'm sure that you would be picking the words and the instruction that you give very, very carefully, valuing your time. And it's interesting, there's three Gospels, the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, that go through many of the same events in Jesus' life. Uh, a significant event uh, would be mentioned by all three, and that's rare. I'll give you an example. The birth of Jesus, only covered by two of the synoptic gospels, but the death, the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the trials, all three. This story included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. It's significant. It caught the author's attention. This is a piece that all three of them wanted you to 
understand and understand clearly. So we're going to go through this a little bit um, carefully, a little slowly. Mark, this is unusual too. Mark is kind of a guy that's like, hey, just I'll give you the facts as quick as I can. Shortest of the three synoptic gospels, actually shortest of the four gospels. And this one, Mark telling Peter's account gives the most detail. And I don't mean to uh, give away the end, but spoiler alert, there's going to be an encounter, an exchange, a conversation that we're looking at this morning. And at the end of this conversation, a man will have approached Jesus with a desperate need, and he will walk away from Jesus unchanged, unhelped, unsatisfied. The text says that he leaves disheartened. It says that Jesus will look at him with sadness. In this exchange, something is offered, something is explained, something is understood, and something is rejected. And it points to a very important question. What would make a man come up to the Son of God, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, Jesus, and walk away unsatisfied? What has so captured this man's heart that understanding that he has a desperate need will meet with the Savior of the universe and walk away unchanged? We're going to jump in in verse 17. If you're keeping notes, here's the first thing. Um, a desperate question, I'm missing something. A desperate question, I'm missing something. Again, Jesus has set out on a journey. He's headed to Jerusalem, verse 17. A man, um, he's called ruler in another gospel. He's called a young man by Luke. A man ran up and knelt before him. Again, I'm gonna move a little slow. Something caught my attention right there. That word ran up to Jesus. He didn't walk up, he didn't stroll up. He ran. Why is he running? Is he a jogger? Was he out for a jog? Is that why it says that he ran up? Maybe it caught my attention because I'm not much of a, a runner. I'm not much of a jogger. I've got, I've got an interesting dynamic kind of in my home life here in Grand Haven. Kristen and I live on a condo that's street level. It's first floor and my office is at the front of the condo. It's kind of a fishbowl. Anybody who is walking down 3rd Street can look in my office and see me, and I can see them. So all day long, um, people are jogging by my office, and um, they kind of look in and just see me sitting there with their judgmental eyes. And um, as I'm sitting there and I'm watching them jog, you think, well, maybe that will be inspiration. Maybe that would make me want to get out and run as well. Um, not so much. I, I, I just kind of get bitter and um, I look at them and I'm like, what are you doing? Here's what I've noticed. Some people will run past my window this way and then they'll run by this way, kind of back and forth. Others will run by my window and then I never see them again. I have no idea what happened to them. I look for them the next day. I hope they're okay. But what I found is most joggers, when they run, they start and end at the exact same point. Have you noticed that? Which makes the whole exercise stupid to me. And, and I actually think when they sit with their judgmental eyes looking at me sitting in my chair, like, why do you do something? I'm like, you're doing nothing. You're ending up at the same place that you started. The stupidest thing is a treadmill. 
Like, like I honestly believe history is going to be on my side with this. I think archaeologists will dig up our treadmills 500 years from now, and they'll be like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever seen. People would set a timer, they would run for half an hour, and they would never move. So, so just understand, that's my view of running. I don't think it really accomplishes much. I just assume sit on my couch, at least I'm consuming chips. You know what I mean? So, so this guy runs. I don't know that he was a jogger. And based off what happens next in the conversation, I, I think it's safe to assume that he's running because there's something urgent on his mind. There, there, there's something um, that he does not want to delay getting to Jesus. He's in a moment at least of mental crisis. I've got to get to Jesus. He will break all social barriers. He is upper class. He is a rich young ruler, and he's going to kneel at the feet of Jesus, who would have been considered a peasant in his day. But he runs to him. He breaks all social barriers. He kneels at his feet. There's something desperate about this man. He has to get to Jesus. Something is on his mind. Look what he says next. He says, and asks him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Matthew says it this way, teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? He, he's worried about eternity. If we're honest, most of us, mo most people don't think a ton about eternity. I was given a book this week by Brian Smoots, one of the guys on our staff, and um, it was entitled, Ideas Have Consequences. Actually, he gave it to me a couple weeks. It took me a couple weeks to read it. It's not, it's not a quick read. And it was written by a guy, a University of Chicago professor by the name of Richard Weaver. And in this book, Idea Has Consequences, Weaver argues that as a society, we've lost our ability to think deeply, that we are fixated on the material world in the here and now. We no longer ask ourselves the important questions. We no longer focus on transcendent truths. We are so distracted by modern technologies and conveniences that we don't take the time to ask the big questions. Most of us are not at home going, um, what is the meaning of life? because we're distracted by technology. We would maybe ask ourselves those questions, but the problem is we go online, and rather than say, hey, what is the meaning of life? We're like, hmm, Pastor Chris is cooking a brisket on his smoker. I wonder what rub he uses. I wonder what temp he's cooking that at. Like, like those are the things that consume our mind. We've actually confused the collection of data. The more data we know has knowledge. And it's interesting, these were Richard Weaver's observations. He doesn't provide a solution. As a matter of fact, his, his book gets a little dark. He actually thinks that society has gone across a tipping point where he's not sure what can be done to bring it back. Sadly, idea have consequences. And Richard Weaver, they wrote this book in 1948. He was worried about some social dynamics. He was concerned about newspapers, that they were getting too one-sided, too editorialized, that they were focusing on sensational stories rather than important stories. He was really worked up about the radio, man. Thought it had too much influence. People were listening to the radio all the time, taking up too much of their time. It was starting to have an impression and formulating opinions. 
and he was really ticked at jazz music. Unstructured musicians doing whatever they want. It's like the radio, jazz music, newspapers, we are over the edge. I, I can't imagine what Richard Weaver would think in 2021. The rich young ruler is asking an important question. How do I get eternal life? It's actually a surprising question when you consider who he is. He's rich, he's young, he has everything that the world can afford. If this was an old guy like coming up to Jesus in his walker, you'd be like, that's a great question. You're going to be there in like 15 minutes. But it's an important question to ask when you're young because if you wait until you're old, you've wasted your life on the trivial and you've missed the important things. He's asking Jesus the right questions. He's asking these questions to the right person. Maybe we can agree that the very fact that this is on his mind to the point where he would run and kneel before Jesus, this man's aware that something's missing in his life. The big idea of this message is simply this. Having everything doesn't mean you're not broke. Having everything doesn't mean you're not broke. He comes up to Jesus. He says, good teacher, Note that he addresses him, good teacher. He doesn't call him Lord. He doesn't need to serve Jesus. He's already a young ruler. Doesn't call him savior. He doesn't see himself as someone who needs to be saved. But he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? The tense of the Greek there is aorist. It basically means, he said, tell me what to do and I'll do it. His expectation was that Jesus would give him some great task, and by accomplishing this task, by putting his efforts to achieving this, he would earn for himself eternal life and peace with God once and for all. The man is asking, what can I do to save myself? Look at Jesus' answer. I call this a layered answer. First part of this, it's, he gets the man to look at the fruit of his life. Let's look at the fruit of your life. Jesus answered and said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. Now, there's some irony there in Jesus' response because he's saying no one's good but God alone, but Jesus is God. You would think in response to this, the man might go, the reason I'm asking you and I understand that God is the only one that's good is because I recognize you as God, but the man missed the subtle prompt. Verse 19, Jesus says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your mother or honor your father and mother. I'm just going to tell you at this point in the exchange, I find it incredibly interesting that Jesus does not point this man to a relationship with himself, but he points him back to the law. The whole encounter Jesus' responses to this man, they're set up by the question, what must I do? Jesus didn't just point this man back to the law. He pointed them, him to the second half of the law. He pointed him to the, what some have called basically the moral law, how we live in relation to one another, commands 5 through 10. Do not murder, do not Commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. These are laws that are somewhat black and white. They are objective, they are measurable, they are observable. In this man's mind, have I murdered? That's a yes, no answer. That's a true, false question. 
and the religious leaders of their day, they loved this part of the law. They loved yes, no, true, false because they liked to measure themselves against things that were objective. They would look and say, have I done it? Have I not? Or they would look in other cases at the person next to them, a more subjective measurement. And they would say, okay, I'm better than that guy, but I'm not as good as that guy. If I measure myself up against, say, Pastor Chris, I'm not really happy where I'm at. Um, Jeffrey Dahmer, I'm doing pretty good. You know, it all matters on who you're measuring yourself against. But in this case, Jesus points him to the objective things that he can look at, not the essay questions, not the things that will reveal the heart. Jesus is going to get there in a minute. If this command were a tree, he's looking at the fruit of the tree, not the root of the tree. And the man looks around, he looks at the objective law that Jesus has pointed him to, and his answer is really quite amazing. Look at verse 20. He said, teacher, all these things I have kept from my youth. Now, I want to point out some things about this guy. He's rich, he's young, he's in a position of an authority, and he's devout. Most, if they had his means and his opportunities that his wealth would have afforded, they'd be off partying. They'd be avoiding the big questions. But this guy's asking the right questions and he's lived the right kind of life. He believes in response to Jesus' questions, he can look Jesus in the eye and go, I've done all of these things from my youth. Question, proud heart or humble heart? Sad truth. He's really not in a position where his heart is ready for the gospel. An obvious follow-up question from Jesus' standpoint to this question, how shall I get eternal life that the young man asks, an obvious follow-up question at this point would have been, then help me. If you have all the means that this world can afford and you've done all of the right things, why are you bringing this question to me? Why are you still so desperate? How can you still be aware that you're missing something? And I want you to understand, Jesus isn't lying when he tells this man that if he keeps the law, he'll get eternal life. Those who keep the law will live. That's promised to us in Deuteronomy 30. The problem is when we consider the whole law and what that means, no one measures up. James 2.10 says, for whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. If you miss one thing one time, you're guilty. It's worse. It's not just the wrongs that we commit. It's the right left undone. James 4, 17 says, so for whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it's sin. So it's not just not doing the wrong. It's when we fail to do the right that we fall short of the requirement of the law. How you doing so far? Gets worse. Let's keep going. Ephesians 3, or Ephesians 2, 1 through 3 says, you were dead in your trespasses and sin. We all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature, by our very nature, children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. In essence, we are sinful because of the deeds that we do, for the good that we left undone, and by our very nature, we are sinful. The psalmist cries out in response, if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, O Lord, who could stand? Last week, I had a verse on the screen as I preached from Galatians 5. I said the purpose of the law was that it was to be a tutor to lead us to Christ. If you believe that the law alone can save, then we must ask the question, why the cross? 
Galatians 2.21 says, I do not nullify the grace of God, for if justification were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. Jesus is probing this man's heart. And it's interesting what the text says next. Jesus looks at this man, this rich young man, this arrogant man, this man who has everything and who believes that he has lived a perfect life. And look what it says in verse 21. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Jesus, looking at him, loved him. I hope that's a good word for somebody today. Maybe somebody's here and you're just like, I just don't know that Jesus can love me. It's been a lousy year. It's been a lousy week. It's been a lousy morning. And, and, and I'm already falling short. I'm, I'm already spiraling into patterns of behavior and patterns of thought that I don't want to be in. And, and, and I am so lost. I'm so far gone. I wonder if Jesus can love me. This guy doesn't even know that he's lost. He's still caught in his pride. And the response of Jesus to this young man, so desperate in need, but so far from the truth, Jesus' hearts towards our brokenness is compassion. Here's the second thing. Now he moves from the fruit. Let's look at the root of the problem. Jesus looks at him, loves him, and says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have, tre- and you will have treasure in heaven. And come and follow me. I just want you to know, like I was surprised that Jesus originally pointed this man back to the keeping of the law, I'm equally surprised by what Jesus says to him at this point. Jesus tells him to go and sell everything that he has. You will not find that command anywhere in Scripture as a condition to being saved. And all God's people said, Amen. Because if that were the condition, would you be willing? What would church attendance look like? I don't think we'd have to worry about social distancing, do you? Like like if that was the requirement, but that isn't the requirement. It's interesting. Psalm 62.10 says, if riches increase, don't set your heart on them. But again, Jesus is asking questions of this man that are driven by his initial question, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So he keeps giving him things to do. Jesus is hunting for the idols of this man's heart. And this is important. When Jesus is revealing the idols in your heart, that's a sign, that's an indication, that is proof that he's loving you. And and I would just say this. The fact that we can turn on the news or walk around our community and it's not too hard to understand that Christianity right now in our culture, can we just say it's falling out of vogue? That that Christian ideals are becoming marginalized? And I know this creates a panic, but let me tell you something, it might not be that bad a thing because when following Jesus comes at a cost, it tends to reveal the idols in our hearts. Jesus always demands that those who come to him put away their idols. Jesus has lovingly exposed this man's heart. And it's interesting, while this man has just claimed that he's kept all the law, he's actually broken the first one. The first commandment is simply this, you shall have no other gods before me. 
How do we know that he's broken that law? How do we know that he has other gods before him? Because Jesus asks him, give away and give all of your uh, possessions to the poor, and the man won't do it. The proof is he's unwilling to surrender his wealth to follow Jesus. Whenever we elevate anything, in this story it's money, but whenever we elevate anything to a primary thing, it is sin. Jesus tells the man, sell everything you have because he knows his heart. He knows that he won't do it. Here's the good news. What does it require of you to follow Jesus Christ? It's a free gift. Salvation is a free gift. All that Jesus requires in return is you make him your ultimate pursuit. How many of you were here last week to hear either Ryan or Cal preach on forgiveness? How many of you thought that was a hard message? (laughs) This one just got hard, didn't it? All Jesus requires is that we make him our primary pursuit. It's interesting, verse 22. Disheartened by the saying, this rich young ruler, he went away sorrowful. Other gospels say he became very sad for he had great possessions or he was extremely rich. Dante calls this the great refusal. This man had met Jesus. He came with a need. He had interacted with Jesus and he leaves unchanged. Final point of the message. I want to come back to this moment of the interaction between this man and Jesus, but I must leave it for a moment because I must take you to where the text demands that I take you. Look at verse 23. And Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, again, Matthew or, or, or Luke says, Jesus looking at the man with sadness. So he looks at the rich young ruler as he walks away. He's looking at him with sadness. He turns to his disciples and says, how difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished and said to him, then who can be saved? I don't want to miss what's going on here because people will debate what Jesus means when he says a camel going through the eye of the needle. The first thing I want to look at, did you see the disciples' response to his instruction that it's going to be hard for the rich to be saved? They're they're, they're shocked. They're exceedingly astonished. Why? Because in that culture, even the disciples had fallen into the trap of making those whose money was their idols the people that they idolized. They believed that the upper class, because of education, because of wealth, and because of means, would be the first to be saved. And Jesus is turning this upside down on its head. He says, no, it's more difficult for them to be saved. And then he uses this analogy of getting a camel through the eye of the needle. Um, I don't think it means a literal needle. Some commentaries explore the idea that as you entered the city of Jerusalem, there was something called a needle gate, and it was really small, and to get your camel through that was a lot of work. I don't know. Here's what I know, and I don't want you to miss. Jesus is giving a warning about money. And rather than debate what a needle and a camel is, let's not miss the warning. 
It's interesting, if you go back and study consumer product and marketing in our country, somewhere back when I was a kid in the late 70s and 80s, there was this big push to protect the consumer. And all of a sudden, everything came with a warning label. If my parents got me a bike when I was a kid, it was a bike. If you buy a bike now, it comes with a warning. This is a mobile assault vehicle. You've got to protect your children. Wear a helmet. You you understand everything comes with a warning to the point where it's actually become somewhat absurd. Do you really need, when you buy a chainsaw, for it to have this warning? Is that necessary? Check out the next one. It's pepper spray. Okay, does pepper spray really need to come with the may irritate eyes warning? But this is what we've done. We have overwarned and overwarned and overwarned so that when we see a 45 second commercial on some drug where the last 30 seconds is a man talking really fast about all the side effects, we just zone it out, right? Parents, If you're raising your kids with the disciplinary style of, if you do that one more time, one more time, one more time, do you understand your kids will eventually zone that out? You're just white noise. And the problem with warnings is if we hear them too often, we ignore the warning. But in this case, from our Savior, this is a warning that I don't want us to miss. Money comes with a very important warning label. And please understand, you can't just excuse it because you don't picture yourself as rich. Any of you, if I dropped you into Liberia, you're rich. Anyone in this room, if I drop you into any previous time in history, you're rich. This is not a message for the guy who has a little bit more money than you. It's not like, man, I hope my rich neighbor is hearing this one. This is for all of us. Do you know what the number one health problem is in the United States? Obesity. Too much food, nowhere to put it, okay? This is all of our problems. The Bible's filled with warnings about money. Let me just give you some. Matthew 6, 24 says, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Matthew 13 and 23 and 24, Jesus is explaining the parable of the sower. And it says, for what was sown among the thorns, this is one who hears the word of God, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. Can the deceitfulness of riches steal the joy, keep our salvation from taking root? Absolutely. This isn't just a warning for the world, it's a warning for the church. In Revelation 3 verse 15 Jesus is writing a letter that Paul is transcribing for him, or I mean, that Mark is, that John is transcribing for him to the church in Laodicea. And it says this, I know your works, you are neither hot nor cold. Would that you were either hot or cold. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Not great words from the Savior. Why is it? For you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. 
1 Timothy 6.10 says, For the love of money is the root of all evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Paul is giving a, a word picture there. The love of money causes people to stab themselves. Self-induced agony caused by the love of money. The issue is not money. It's the love of money when that is your primary pursuit. And I would broaden the category to say, not just your bank account, but your comfort. It's okay to have stuff. It's not okay when your stuff has you. If money were the issue, we could just give it away. And that's not what Jesus commands. Proverbs 13.22 says, A good man leaves an inheritance to his children's children. 1 Timothy 6, verse 17 As for the rich in the present age, this is instruction given to the rich. Charge them not to be haughty, proudful, nor set their eyes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Hey, enjoy what God has blessed you with. You're allowed to enjoy what God has entrusted to your stewardship, but don't become proud. Don't set your hopes. Don't set the foundation of your security on the uncertainty of riches. This isn't just a rich person problem. George MacDonald, a Scottish pastor, said it this way. It is not only the rich who is under the dominion of things. They are slaves too who, having no money, are unhappy for the lack of it. The money that one has and the money the other would have is in each case the cause of eternal stupidity. What do you think of my two favorite words in that quote? Eternal stupidity. And that can be a problem, not just for the man who has money, but for the person who believes that if they could get possession of wealth, that it would ultimately satisfy, that it would meet their needs, that it would be a strong foundation. So what's the solution? Hebrews 13 says... Keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. Contentment. Okay, okay. Great. Don't worry about riches, just be content. How you doing? Well, how about we, how do you get there? For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. The rich young ruler asked an important question. How do I get eternal life? Jesus is saying the key to avoiding the trappings, the key to understanding the warnings of money, set your eyes back on eternity. Be content with what you have here, understanding that you have a Savior who will never leave or forsake. The disciples had just looked at Jesus and said, if this is the case, like who can be saved? I take great comfort in verse 27. Jesus looked at them and said, with man it is impossible, but not with God. For all things are possible with God. The rich young man had come to Jesus. A rich young ruler had approached another rich young ruler. And he asked him, what must I do to get eternal life? There's nothing you can do. It's impossible. Sadly, the man didn't recognize that the rich young ruler who he asked the question to would give up everything 
He would leave heaven. He would leave all of its glory. He would not hold on to those things. He did not consider them something to be grasped hold of, Philippians 2, but was willing to empty himself, was willing to come down, take human form, live the perfect life that no man could lead, get on a journey to Jerusalem to go to the cross to die and be resurrected and pay the penalty for our sins. Listen, salvation, there is nothing that I can prescribe. There is nothing anyone can prescribe for you to do that's going to get you to eternal life. The only way that happens is by looking at your Savior and following him. But please hear me. There is nothing you can do, and it is a free gift. He's looking for it to be your primary pursuit. And don't think that Jesus is just going to go after the idols of this man's heart and he's going to let you follow along claiming to be a follower of Jesus Christ and not expose the idols in yours. I close with just three questions. Maybe these will help you identify your idols. Here's a question. What are you unwilling to give up to follow Jesus? I will follow Jesus as long as. I will follow Jesus if he's willing to do this. What is the sin that you are entertaining that you won't drag out into the light and slay? And you say, I'm going to be a follower of Jesus, but I'm not going to deal with this issue. Warning. Here's a second thing. What are you willing to give up to follow Jesus? Two other ways you can identify your idols. Follow your money, find your idol. Follow your money, find your idol. Wouldn't take long. I could sit with you in your checking account and I'd have a pretty good indication on where your idols were. And then just a third question. Follow your time, find your idol. I hate at the end of every week that my computer tells me my average screen time per day. Follow your time. Find your idol. I don't know how the story ends. I find it interesting. The man walks away from Jesus. Hey, all you got to do is give up everything you have and follow me. The man doesn't respond. He doesn't say no. There's no more verbal exchange. It's not like he said no. Just kind of drifted away. I think that represents our hearts as well. I don't think most of us are saying no to Jesus. I don't think there's a moment of confrontation. I think our idols just allow us to drift away with nothing unsaid or with nothing said. We don't know any more about this man. We don't know how his life unfolds. I wonder if he was married. I wonder if he got married. I wonder if he had kids. I wonder if someday his kids came up to him and said, hey, dad, did you ever meet Jesus? Yeah, I did. Didn't change anything. I doubt he was ever satisfied because this question keeps running around in my head. What can a man give for his soul? Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this word and uh, this challenge. And um, my prayer would be that this would not be um, something that we allow our mind to compartmentalize, that this is not just some meeting you had 2,000 years ago. Father, let this be a meeting between you and us today. Father, give us the courage to ask the big questions. 
Father, give us the resolve to identify our idols. And Father, we praise you because even during that process, you love us so well. It's in the name of our Savior, our Lord, your Son, Jesus, that we pray.